Let me ask you, do you remember why Luke wrote this gospel? Looking for one key word that begins with C. Anybody? <laughs> I thought I heard it. Certainty, yes. Luke wrote this gospel, inspired of the Holy Spirit of God, of course, for our certainty. We know this because he said so in the introduction. He Introduction uh, he, that he wrote to Theophilus, he said that he had undertaken to compile a narrative, an orderly account of the things that have been accomplished among us that we may have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Certainty of the truth of Jesus and certainty of the worth of our Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us, obviously, to a question. If we are going to be certain of the truth and the worth of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to know that he is Lord and that he is Christ. We need to know who he is. And that answer is what everybody is testifying to in the beginning chapters of Luke. And for everybody else, that's what they're wondering. Who Jesus is. The angel Gabriel, if we go back and look at the different testimonies to the identity of Jesus, Gabriel in chapter 1 testified in his announcement to the Virgin Mary. He said, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. Jesus himself testified of his divine sonship when he was at the temple. Remember, Mary accosted him for staying behind at the temple after his parents had started their way back home to Nazareth. But he responded, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Who is he? He is the son of God. Then the father himself testified at Jesus' baptism. When the heavens opened there above the Jordan River and God pronounced over Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That event is followed up by the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That concludes that Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. And then, So we have a variety of sources, all testifying to the divine sonship of Jesus. The genealogy is followed by the account of Jesus being led into the wilderness by the Spirit to have that encounter there with the devil. And the devil begins two of his provocations with, if you are the Son of God. So when we talk about a variety of sources testifying to the identity of Jesus, we're talking about a very wide spectrum from God the Father in heaven on one hand to the devil of hell on the other. Whether it comes very clearly, as in the angel's announcement or the father's testimony or by way of inference, as in the, what the devil's word, if you are the son of God, we have testimony one after another who Jesus is. He is no one less than the Son of God. But so far, this is all we have concerning who Jesus is. 
All we have thus far is testimony. All we have is words. So how about something to see? How about a visible demonstration that Jesus is in fact the Son of God? We've heard words, okay? How about works? When somebody talks big all the time, they talk of big plans and they're always making big promises of what they're going to do, and then they never actually do anything, we say about this person, not very kindly, that they are all talk, right? You are all talk, we say. Now, so far, again, all we have about Jesus' identity is testimony. Now, I wouldn't say that it's um, becoming, um, you know, close or it's, you know, dangerous or anything like that, that Jesus would be called all talk, that he would be accused of being all talk. But if he doesn't do something soon, somebody might start to say that. Somebody might start to think, Jesus, you are all words, you are all talk, do something. Actually do something to back up all of this talk. Don't just tell us that you are the Son of God. Show us that you are the Son of God. Let me stop. Let me look at, it this, look at this from a slightly different track. Theologians, when they look at the person of Jesus, often, often make a distinction between the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. And so far, through this, all we have is word about Jesus. And we don't want only words, we want works. So again, they make a distinction between the words of Jesus on one hand and the works of Jesus on the other hand. Now, thus far, when I have said that Jesus may be getting close to uh, being accused of being all talk and this demand that he actually back up this talk and not just tell us but show us, I'm, I'm playing here devil's advocate. Because what we're going to see in Luke 4 is something that is absolutely astonishing. It astonished the crowds. It amazed them. It, it, what amazed them must amaze you and me. It should amaze you and me. If we're being honest, if we're, we're approaching the text humbly and, and dealing with it as we should, it will astonish us. It is not only amazing what Jesus said. It's not only amazing what Jesus did. But what is especially astonishing is that what he says does. What he says does. That is, you cannot separate his words from his works. His words are his works. What he says does. Okay? Now, that might not make sense completely right now, but let's read this text together. And as we progress today, I think that it will become clear and it will be astonishing, I pray, as it should be. So we are in Luke 4, again, uh, beginning in verse 31. 
And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went to, into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. What we are seeing in this text is the astonishing authority of the word of Jesus. And maybe it has become, just by reading this text, a little bit clearer to your mind what I meant when I said, it's not just amazing what he says, and it's not just amazing what he does, but what is especially astonishing is this, that what he says does. It's the authority of his word. We're going to pray in a moment, but this is the application that I I want to bring to your attention today. What you do with the word of Jesus Christ Tremble at his word and do not trifle with it. The astonishing authority of the word of Jesus means we must tremble before his word and we must not trifle. There is nothing more devilish than to twist the scriptures, than to make them say what you want them to say. And there is nothing more godly than to take God at his word, to tremble before his word and tremble before nothing else. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you would give to us freely, liberally, your Holy Spirit. Fill us, Father, I pray with your Holy Spirit, according to your grace in Christ. We know, Father, that we have no merit on our own that would earn us the filling of your spirit to give us a a right 
heart, a clean heart before you, a humble and believing heart. We cannot earn this, but Jesus has earned the gift of your, of your spirit for us. For he died the death that we should have died. And he has lived the life that we should have lived. And Father, we come before you in his righteousness, his righteousness alone, not ours. We come in his name. And we ask that you give to us your spirit so that we can, Father, have the proper response, the God-glorifying response to the astonishing authority of Jesus' word that we ought to have. I pray, Father, that Jesus would be exalted before every eye and in every heart. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Let's first consider, as we consider the astonishing authority of the word of Jesus, let's consider this teaching authority. Read these couple verses again quickly, beginning verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Uh, Capernaum is a little northeast of Nazareth, where we found Jesus in the passage previous to this. It's northeast of Nazareth on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew tells us that Jesus actually made Capernaum the home base of his ministry. So he had moved, he transplanted himself from Nazareth to Capernaum, and he lived there. He is, as is his custom on the Sabbath day, with the people of God. Again, as in the passage previous to this, he's in the synagogue, and he is teaching. Verse 32 says that they were astonished at the teaching of Jesus, for his word possessed authority. What's interesting here is that we don't know what the particulars were of Jesus' teaching. That's not Luke's point here. It's not his point what Jesus taught. It's his point how he taught. That he taught with this astonishing authority. What set Jesus apart in his teaching authority from all of the other hundreds upon hundreds of religious teachers in his day? Well, one thing that set him apart from the rest was that the Jewish rabbis, pretty much all that they did in their teaching was to regurgitate the tradition that they had learned from the rabbis before them. They would get up or, and they would, you know, they would sit down actually. That was the customary position for a teacher. And they would say, Rabbi so and so said this. And Rabbi so and so said that. And Rabbi so-and-so said blah, blah, blah. And that's all that it pretty much amounted to. All they did was regurgitate this tradition, which actually corrupted the true word of God. So when Jesus came along, the only time that he quoted this rabbinical tradition was to actually put it down. He did quote a lot, but what he was quoting was the Old Testament scriptures. So in that sense, the authority of Jesus of casting aside this rabbinical tradition and putting all of his emphasis upon the word of God, in that sense, his authority astonished the people. But there was something else as well. As a man, 
Jesus lived under the authority of the word. As a man, he lived under the authority of the word. Do you remember, I, I was tempted to point it out at the time, but I just, I didn't have time to, to cover it when we covered the temptation of Jesus. But it, it's, it's unique, isn't it? That Jesus, who is the son of God, who is God in the flesh, when the devil tempted him to make bread, how did Jesus respond? He quoted the scriptures and said, man shall not live by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone. And by making that statement, quoting that scripture, Jesus was saying, I too, as a man, am under the authority of the word of God. So he lived under the authority of the Bible. But when he preached the Bible, it was different. If you would go back, we don't have time today, but if you would go back to the book of Matthew and look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, particularly chapter 5, you would find Jesus quoting from the Old Testament a lot. This is the way he, he framed it. He said, you have heard that it was said. Does this sound familiar to you? Matthew 5, it's a, there's a bunch of it. He said, you have heard that it was said, and then he quotes the Old Testament. And then proceeds to say, but I say to you. So, you have heard that it was said, Old Testament quote, Old Testament commandment, but I say to you. And what he's doing is recasting that commandment and clarifying it and showing its true intent. Do you see the difference between the relationship of Jesus' life to the word and the relationship of his preaching to the word. It's the difference between the word owning him and him owning the word. And both of those are true because of who Jesus is. That in this one person, there are two natures. He is holy man and he is at the same time holy God. So he obeyed the word as a man under its authority, but he preached it as the Lord with authority over the word. And it's no wonder then that when he taught the scriptures in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, the people are astonished at the authority of his teaching. In this next passage, beginning verse 33, we're looking at, Authority in a different kind of word. First, there's a a teaching authority. And now we see an exercising authority. And I don't mean exercise. I'm talking about exercising the demon. Teaching authority and exercising authority. It says in the beginning of verse 33, And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Luke has been emphasizing that Jesus has the spirit who is holy. Now this man in the synagogue that Jesus encounters also has a spirit, but Luke wants us to be very clear on the difference. Not a holy spirit, but an unclean spirit, a demon. It says in the second part of verse 33, And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, I don't know if you have any skepticism in your mind, 
But skepticism is rampant over this kind of thing in our society. The, this um, secular, materialist West that we live in doesn't believe that such spiritual powers exist today. They believe that if you can't scrutinize a thing empirically, then said thing doesn't exist. But people all over the world who have not bought into the lies of scientism, I'm not saying science, but scientism, have not swallowed this. They know better. We are in spiritual combat, the Bible says, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is, in the unseen realm. That's Ephesians 6, verse 12. So there are, in our world, there is a host of demons who are the minions of Satan. The deceiver, the accuser, the father of lies, the one who has been a murderer from the beginning. Now we have here in Luke 4, this contest of authorities. Whose authority is greater? The devil's and this demon who represents him or Jesus Christ? This is not a different battle than the one earlier. The the earlier battle being when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. It's not a different battle. It's the same fight just on a different field of combat. And just before we think about how Jesus responded. This, um, this is, of course, again, the first encounter of, of its kind with a demon representing the devil. And it makes you wonder if Satan, knowing very well who Jesus is, as we saw earlier in chapter 4, if Satan, knowing that Jesus is the Son of God, did not concentrate his forces in Israel for this time. I, I would say... Even though the Bible doesn't say it, I, w- I would say, of course he did. Right? Of course he did. Knowing who Christ is, and we see all of these encounters uh, between Jesus and demons throughout his ministry, of course Jesus, uh, Satan concentrated his forces for this time and for this place. David Garland wrote, His clash with the devil now takes a different tack. He no longer fires scripture verses at the devil, but raids his outposts, routes his demonic legions, and sets free their captives. We've already seen it. We're going to see it again. The route is on. There is no contest between these authorities. There is no rival authority to the word of God. It says in verse 35, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. And come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Where Jesus speaks, demons will not be permitted to do the same. Now we know from what Jesus said elsewhere, that there, that there were other exorcists working during Jesus' lifetime. But how would those Jews cast out demons? They would have to follow a certain formula. They would go through a set of motions. And they would never respond to the authority of the demon 
with their own authority. They would always invoke the name and the authority of another. Jesus does not do that. Jesus simply tells this one to shut up and to get out. And the response of the crowd is that they are amazed. In verse 36, they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. This power of darkness can no more stay in this individual than a rain cloud can settle on the face of the sun. The authority of Jesus is that kind of irresistible. You see, in in both of these words, whether you're talking about the teaching word of Jesus or the exercising word of Jesus, there is remarkable authority that astonishes those who are witnesses. It says, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. The word about Jesus' words, the authority of his words, spreads like wildfire. Let's read verse 38 again. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. This incident takes place on on the same afternoon of this Sabbath day, and uh, it's after the morning synagogue service. The Simon here is, of course, the one that we'll know soon as Simon Peter. So having just healed this man who is demon-possessed, the people in Simon's household appeal on behalf of Simon's mother-in-law, who has a dangerously high fever. And it says in verse 39 that he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she, she rose and began to serve. Do you remember... When you were a kid, and some of you are still kids, so you should know really well. You remember seeing those two pictures side by side, and they look so similar to one another, but there's a few minute differences in the instructions say, you know, circle the differences between these these two pictures. And and you, you find these little things like maybe there's a boy standing there, and he looks just the same in both pictures, but maybe one shoe is untied in one picture and both shoes are tied in the other. Stuff like that. Superficial differences. Well, here we have these two healings side by side. And obviously, there's going to be differences between the two. But Luke frames the healings in such a way that the differences end up being superficial differences. Jesus rebuked the demon, it said. And now he rebukes the fever. Who rebukes a fever? This is incredible. And the virus, the bacteria, whatever it is, obeys him. It flees. So Jesus rebuked the demon. Now Jesus rebukes the fever. As though the fever had no more right to be in the presence of the Son of God than the demon did. It can no more stay in the woman than the demon can stay in the man. And another similarity between the two is that, we didn't talk about this, but the man who had the demon um, didn't feel any ill effects. It says that the demon did him no harm, which is not usual, by the way. 
even when a demon was cast out by an exorcist, it was just expected that there would be physical side effects on the person who has been demon-possessed, but not here. There are no side effects. In same way with this woman, Peter's mother-in-law. She feels no ill effects from the fever. She probably actually feels 20 years younger. She probably gets up to serve with more energy than she has served with in a long, long time. And the people are amazed. What word is this? And whose voice is this? In verse 40, it says, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, they waited until the setting of the sun is because that's when the Sabbath day ended. And they had this idea that it would be work on the Sabbath to bring their sick to Jesus. So the Jewish day lasts from sunset to sunset. So now it's, um, it's, su- it's Sunday, and they feel free to bring their sick to Jesus. All uh, Any who were sick with various diseases, they brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Now we've been emphasizing from the beginning that... Jesus is so much talk, and his words work, and what he says does. And now we have Jesus actually laying his hands. Why? Why does he have to, or why does he lay his hands on the sick if he doesn't need to do that to heal them? I think there's a couple of reasons, but let me just mention one. When Jesus rebuked the disease... The witnesses were led to believe in his lordship. When he rebuked the disease, they were led to believe in his lordship. But when he touched the diseased, they were led to believe in his love too. The highest loves the lowest. The strongest is loving the weakest. The purest is loving the ugliest and the most defiled. The brightest is loving the darkest. This is an example of the compassion, the closeness, and the tenderness of Christ. How far will this love take him? Of course, it will take him to the cross, where he becomes in himself the darkest and the lowest and the weakest, and the ugliest. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, He who knew no sin will lay himself down to be made sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. They heard him and believed in his lordship. They felt his touch, and they believed in his love. And demons also came out of many, it says in verse 41, crying, you are the Son of God. I'm trying to get the right tone, I'm sure, but I'm struggling to. You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. It's the same thing as before. He rebukes and the demons flee. They cannot stay. And they leave silenced. Why does Jesus refuse the demons identifying him? 
There are several reasons why, and I want to touch on three, but I want to do it quickly. Why does he refuse them identifying who he is, the Son of God? First thing I think is this. During the 2008 presidential campaign, Senator John McCain ended up being endorsed by one of his former prison guards from communist Vietnam. I don't know if any of you remember this, but it, it really stood out to me at the time because, because of the similarity to Jesus. That, you know, it doesn't matter how worthy of an endorsement you might be, you don't want the endorsement of your enemy. And so, for obvious reasons, John McCain refused the endorsement. He didn't want to hear it from his former prison guard. It's the same thing here that Jesus will not receive the endorsement of the enemy. These powers of darkness, as I said before, are the minions of the father of lies, who is Satan. Satan, we know, sometimes speaks the truth. But why does he ever speak the truth? To advance his lies. It's not to exalt the truth to push the truth, it's to advance his lies and his destructive agenda. So we can absolutely trust that these demons who are identifying Jesus and saying, you are the Son of God, or I know who you are, the Holy One of God, are speaking the truth to advance Satan's lie. And it says here that Jesus refused to let them speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So they're identifying him as the Son of God, the Holy One of God that is the Christ, and he refuses this. What might Satan be trying to push by having his representatives identifying Jesus as the Christ? What do people want? What did the people want when they got wind that Jesus was the Christ before he died, before the cross? What did they want? This was the temptation. Satan was tempting them to clamor after Jesus for what he could give them, not for who he is. It was not so that they would come to him as he is, but clamor for him to give them what they wanted, to satisfy various physical needs and and temporal things and, and various appetites that they had. Like in John chapter 6, when the people wanted to make Jesus king, not because they saw the sign, but because he had fed them with so much food that it left them stuffed for the first time in who knows how long. Right? That's what Satan is trying to push. And I think that he is actually tempting the people and Jesus both. Because this is really a repeat of that temptation we saw in the wilderness when Satan offered to Jesus the kingdoms of this world if Jesus would simply worship the devil. He is offering the people a different kind of king. And he is offering Jesus a different kind of crowd. And crown, I should say, actually. Offering him a different kind of crown. Tempting him with the adulation of the crowds. So there, there's two reasons right there. You don't accept the endorsement of the enemy, no matter how glowing their endorsement is. And second, Satan is simply pushing his own agenda. Third thing, real quickly, if this succeeds and Jesus accepts 
the crown that the people would lay upon his head, then who has established the kingdom of the Christ? Satan has. It's been Satan's word. Jesus refuses it, and he shuts them up. The word of the devil will not establish the kingdom of the Christ. And when it was day, it says in verse 42, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. I think that they have heard what the demon said and they know what kind of... I mean, think about it. If Jesus lives with them, they're going to live forever, right? This town has never felt so youthful. It's like they discovered that mythic fountain of life, except the real thing. They could not believe what they had on their hands. They wanted him to stay, but I think for all the wrong reasons. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. He must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. For centuries, the kingdom of God had been promised. There is coming one, a a second greater David, to take the throne. He will be the Messiah. He will reign forever. His dominion will endure forever. These are the promises of the Old Testament. Now in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. Jesus said in Luke 11, verse 20, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you, he said. But in the same chapter, get this. Jesus said earlier in Luke 11, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Father, your kingdom come. So in the same chapter that he tells us to pray for the kingdom to come, he says that the kingdom has come. It's kind of strange, isn't it? In Jesus the kingdom comes. But Jesus has not yet come to stay. He has not yet come to stay. He came the first time to seek and to save the lost. He came to die on behalf of his people, to take our place upon the cross, that by the grace of God, we might be transferred out of that domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. When Jesus comes again, the kingdom will come and it will be established on the earth. So he was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom. What astonishes the people? What is Luke's point in this passage? It's words. Words. The astonishing authority of the word of Jesus This establishes and it proves to us the identity of Jesus. Who is he? He is the Son of God. He has the power of God. The Word of God has always been God's instrument. His Word has always been his chosen instrument to give life. Go right back to the beginning. God said, let there be light. And there was light. What he says is. What he said did. So that you cannot separate words from works. 
His words are his works. It's not so much astonishing that he says. It's not so much astonishing that he does. It's that what he says does. And Jesus replicates that very clearly in the words that he teaches and how he exercises the demons and rebukes even the fever. It goes from let there be light to little girl, I say to you, arise. From breath, breathe on these slain that they may live to Lazarus, come forth. It's the astonishing authority of the word of Christ. His is the word of God, for he is the son of God. Tremble before the word of Christ. Again, the word has always been God's chosen instrument to give us life. God said in Isaiah 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you see the importance, the the primacy given to the word of God. If you are going to be a man of God, men, you must be a man of the word. Women, if you are going to be a woman of God, you must be a woman of the word. There's no other option. All these things my hand has made, the Lord declared. And so all these things came to be. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The word of God has always been God's chosen instrument to give life. In Colossians, Paul calls the gospel the word of truth. The good news of Jesus is the word of truth. And he said that that word bears fruit, and it grows. The Word of God gives life. In Romans, it says that the gospel, the word of truth, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if you go through your life with this book up on the shelf collecting dust, I don't know what you're thinking. It would be insane for the child of God to go through life neglecting the word of God. Tremble at his word and do not trifle with his word. Because there is nothing more devilish than to do what Satan did in the wilderness and twist the scriptures. He might speak truth but it's for the destruction of those who listen to him. There's nothing more devilish than to twist the scriptures and make them say what you want them to say and not what God intends. But there is nothing more godly than to tremble at the word of God, to take him at his word, and to trust him 
with all that he says. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would recognize Jesus for who he is by the word that he speaks. Just as soon as we might begin to think, maybe this man is all talk. He keeps on talking. And what he says, does. His word works. By his word, we live. And so I pray, Father, that those who are gathered here and have heard this word would take it to heart and be astonished at the authority of Christ and be moved to worship him as the Son of God. I pray, Father, that we would tremble at his word, not only this word, but all that you have said to us. I pray that we would live trembling at your word, trusting your word, and always so careful not to twist it, which would be to our own destruction. I pray, Father, that everyone who's here listening, I pray that you would give to each one the determination and the discipline to become a person of your word. May we be a people of the book for your namesake, for your glory and honor. In Jesus we pray. Amen.